Lord, thanks uh, for all the ways you help us have a good time and enjoy life. And we do thank you that, uh, Lord, all our desires for joy and fulfillment, peace and happiness are to be found in you, a God who not only willingly gives yourself to us and makes us your own, but does so at your own expense. Lord, uh, thanks. Just thanks for your rich generosity, your merciful love, all the great ways you bless us. Lord, I think of our missionary <coughs> Ganesh, our <coughs> older friend, as far as the missionaries from Gospel for Asia and India, and pray for your strong support for him. He's seen lots of trial and sadness in his life. And I pray that out of that all, you'd give him springs of joy and more of yourself in such a way that he not only enjoys your presence and the knowledge of you, Lord, but that overflows also as he shares with others. Lord, also this morning, help us to get the things you want for each one of us out of uh, these stories of the incarnation, your son, the Lord Jesus, coming down to join us in humanity, to pay for our sins and redeem us, restore us back to you. Help us to be hearing the things you want us to know and then help us to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, we started a three-week series for Christmas. Uh, Last week's theme was witness. This week's is worship. And next week's is wonder. And we talked about Christmas is a great opportunity to witness. And we looked at that and basically said, gosh, take advantage of the opportunities God gives you this Christmas. People are thinking about Christmas, even if it's minimized in some ways. The story, the birth of Christ is still a center issue. Take advantage of that and witness for Christ to others. And so my question to you this morning is, what kind of witnessing did we get in this last week? Uh, my wife did a great job. I know I followed her wake with a couple people, and just being aware of it is helpful. Uh, so ask yourself, are you witnessing this Christmas season? There's lots of opportunities to do that. Uh, this week's theme is worship, and we're in the same text, basically, the opening chapters of Luke and Matthew. Before we go there, I want to read a verse out of John. And by the way, let me advertise here Lion and Lamb's website, courtesy of Eric Anderson. Um, Eric's done, you got to see it to believe it, yeah. It's a great, it's a great job, it's super. Uh, www.lionandlambchurch.com uh, And is spelled out, lionandlambchurch.com It's a great website, Eric's spent a ton of time and it's remarkably well laid out it's easy you can go you can hear teachings online with real player you can see what songs are being sung and if i told him you'd know what was being taught on or anybody else on sunday morning anyway and this is growing eric's put a lot of time in it already but it'll be a great tool for the church just as far as communication but anyway on the home page the opening page of our website eric has aptly quoted john 4 23 An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Let me read this again. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The Father seeks worshipers. 
the theme today is worship. Tied up. of the passages we looked at last week, but for a different purpose, or different parts of the same passages. We're going to start in Luke 1, verse 26. If you remember last year, the silence, in fact, think about this, 400 years of silence was broken when an angel, Gabriel, appeared to old Zacharias in the temple. We talked about silent witness with Zacharias. But basically saying old Zach and Liz were going to have a child in their old age, this would be John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. We're reading now six months later, Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month from Zacharias' appearance at the temple with the angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, <clears throat> The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. And the phrase that I want to key in on this morning is verse 38, Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to suggest that Mary's response here is worship, if you can call it this, in its purest form. Worship in its purest form. Remember Zechariah's terrified in the temple when the same angel Gabriel appears to him. An angel, the same glorious creature from heaven, kind of like the Blues Brothers on a mission from God, you know, sent from God. Where does this come from, Kristen? I don't know. But anyway, uh, this glorious creature appearing and that same overwhelming sense uh, in his presence, and he rattles off this list. Now just think about this for a moment. You're just living your life. You're 14, 15 years old, right? You don't know anything yet, so to speak. Not much. Still a young woman here, a young girl. And not only does this glorious creature appear to you, but then he tells you you're going to be the mother of the Savior of the world, the mother of Israel's Messiah. You'd be overwhelmed. It would be overwhelming. His appearance would be overwhelming. Hearing him from him would be overwhelming. And the message would be overwhelming. And you know what? The text does not record any of this. Any fear on Mary's part. It doesn't record any hesitation on her part. It doesn't record any sense of her being overwhelmed, and it would be overwhelming. She says two things. She says, how will this occur since I'm a virgin? How am I going to conceive? How will it happen? And then her response here at the end, behold the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according 
to your word. Her immediate response, as far as this story goes, is worship. And by this I mean this. <clears throat> we typically think of worship as verbally giving God praise or declaring his worth with our words. But you remember in both Testaments, worship is more often than not the symbol of someone bowing in submission to their greater. And the terms used for worship, especially in the Old Testament, don't have to do with words. They have to do with an action, and the action is bowing. It's bowing. If you think of Psalm 2, when it says, Worship the Son, the Messiah, worship the Son, it's kiss the Son. It's bow in worship before the Son and show Him allegiance. So worship is primarily not our words, though it includes that. Worship is first and foremost a position of subservience or submission, bowing prostrate before God. This is true worship. And this is what I mean about Mary's response. Her response is worship in its purest form. It is immediate submission to God and to his will immediate submission to God and to his will. She says, I am God's slave, and he can do with me what he wants. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She doesn't argue. She doesn't think this through and think what the implications will be. She doesn't reason it out in her mind. She just says right off in this overwhelming scene, her response is, I'm God's slave, let him do whatever he sees fit. I love this. This is a great, great response. Lord, I know who you are. Lord, I know who I am in your program, and you can do as you see fit because I'm yours. I'm your slave, and you can use me any way you choose to. This is worship, and this is the heart and soul of worship. And you know, you can go to lots of churches, and you can come to this church too, and you can sing Christmas hymns, you can recite Christmas verses, and you can have none of this true worship going on in your life. And then the verbal worship is, I think, in God's eyes, it's meaningless. You remember what Jesus quotes Isaiah to say, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. And we can do that. We can go through the Christmas season. We can read the Christmas stories. They're cute, sort of. You know, Linus and Charlie Brown, you know, the Christmas stories. They're cute, comforting, quaint. It's a baby in a manger. But singing Christmas songs, reading Christmas stories, apart from this kind of worship, entirely misses the mark. It's not worship. It's not worship. Mary's worship here, and that's really what it is, is immediate, it's heartfelt, it's Lord, you're God, I'm not, you do as you see fit. That is worship. And this Christmas season, you remember, Mary's just going along. And this apparition happens, and this world-shaking announcement is made, but she's just going along in her life. She doesn't know this is coming. She's not prepared to obey God, you see, mentally, emotionally. This Christmas season, God may ask you to do things you didn't think about beforehand. He may confront you with some demand of your time or energy. And you may not have a lot of time to think about it either. And this is, to me, this is the, the telling thing. See, when push comes to shove in these quick moments, what 
what's our response? Well, we don't have time to think about it. I like the Lord to say, Mike, I'm going to ask you something a week from now. I want you to think about it, get prepared, mentally adjust, emotionally adjust, and be ready. And you know what? That's generally not what he does. I'm faced suddenly with a situation I didn't know was coming, and I have to choose on the spot, am I God's servant or not? Do I worship God in this situation or not? He's asked me to do something I hadn't prepared for. Here's a need that's suddenly in front of me. And I know that worshiping God means giving myself to it. What will I do this Christmas season? Mary, I believe, had the essence of worship, and it was submission to God and his will for her life, and it was immediate. It was immediate. So this Christmas season, arm yourself with this thought about worship. Lord, when you make some unexpected demand on my time or my energy or whatever, help me to have Mary's response, this worship that says, God, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. You do whatever you see fit. I'll follow. I'll obey. This is worship, and it's the worship we need to follow this Christmas season. Apart from this, the songs and the, the hymns are all pretty empty, pretty vacuous. Mary didn't just worship, though, in this act of worship, of submission to God. She did worship in word as well. This is in Luke 1, starting at verse 46. You remember, she's gone down to her relatives, Elizabeth, who is now pregnant six months at least with John the Baptist. And when she gets down there, Mary says this, Luke 1, verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, raises him up, worships him, my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. That's her, God's slave, his servant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Three things about her worship here declares God's goodness in her worship by his name, by his acts, and by what he had done for her. Let me say this again. Declares God's worth, his worship, by name, by his acts, and by what he had done for her. Let me just revisit this briefly. In her worship, she says, God my Savior... God the Mighty One, God the One whose name is Holy. When she's worshiping God, she's worshiping Him through His names, which reveal His character. She also says she worships God, exalts Him, because He's merciful to all generations, because of His mighty deeds, because He scattered the proud, because He's humbled rulers and exalted the humble, because He's filled the hungry, but turned back the wicked rich, because He's given help to Israel, and kept his word to Abraham. And then what he'd done for her, he had regard for her humble status, he'd blessed her in the eyes of all the generations, and he'd done great things for her. I don't think it was hard for Mary to worship verbally here. Now just think about this for a minute. If, some, if we're a balloon, 
and we're filled with the words of our heart, the meditations of our heart and mind, if somebody pricks us, what comes out? I'd suggest Mary was pricked here, so to speak, when Elizabeth says, man, the baby in my womb leapt as soon as you entered in. And Mary just rolls. She just opens her mouth. This is like Psalm 45. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. My heart overflows with this good theme. I think that's what's happening here. She didn't have to think about this beforehand, I think, because the words that came out of her mouth were the thoughts in her mind and her heart. She knows God by name. In fact, she calls him God my Savior, but he's the one who's mighty. He's the one whose name is holy. And she knows what he's done historically. I think she'd meditated on these things. She also knows what God has done specifically for her. So when Mary's balloon, so to speak, is pricked, out of the abundance of her heart, the words flow, and it's God's name, and it's his acts in history, and it's his acts for her. If somebody pokes your balloon or mine today, what comes out? What is the meditation of our heart? What, what fills our heart and our mind? If we're suddenly pricked with some situation or whatever and, and our words are going to come out, what are they going to be? Are we characterized by this kind of meditation that our heart, that our thoughts are on the Lord? They're on his things. They're on his goodness to us. Uh, I'll tell you a really just a key indicator of someone's spiritual status. <laughs> I don't mean to embarrass any. Uh, if you're in a setting in which people pray, listen to the way they pray. Just listen to the way they pray. Listen to the way they talk to their father. This speaks mountains. Uh, people who pray shallow prayers, and they probably have a fairly shallow relationship with their father. Some people pray quite readily. Now, some people are intimidated by praying in front of others, and I, I understand that. I'm not... Again, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot when I say this. But our words do reveal our heart. Our words do reveal our meditations. And when, when people pray, we're kind of revealing the, the center of who and what we are. And if you have a deep, abiding relationship with the Lord, that tends to come out when you pray. Because that's your meditation. You're thinking about God. You're, you're just interacting verbally with the one you have a relationship with all the time. If your prayer is shallow, it's probably because your relationship is shallow. How we pray, just as Mary did here. See, she's just overflowing with the thoughts of her mind and her heart. The meditation of her heart overflows, and it's praise, it's worship. Ask yourself, what are my thoughts routinely, what are my thoughts filled with? Now, if you're a nursing student, your, your thoughts are routinely filled with memorizing Pathophys, I know. And, and if you're at work, I mean, all of us, we're interacting in the world that we occupy, and I'm not talking about not having to work hard and think about the things, engineering and nursing and mothering and, and all the other things. But in between all that and in the midst of all that, where's our mind? Someone pricks us. What comes out? See, Mary, she meditated on God and on his goodness in history and on his goodness towards her. And so when Elizabeth says this thing about Boy, what are you doing her here? Her heart just overflows with praise to God. What are we meditating on this Christmas season? Where 
is our heart? What are the words that readily come out of our mouth? And really, to me, one of the easy things to do, just to be thankful, to cultivate towards God thankfulness, is just to remember how many ways he's blessed me. And guys, this isn't hard. If you've got a roof to sleep under, you're blessed. If you've got food on the table, you're blessed. If you've got a car to drive, or three, or a television to watch, do you, you see what I'm saying? Even materially, we're blessed like people I haven't seen in the history of the world. Most of us have in our household hold more wealth than Solomon did. We're blessed. And spiritually, if you call Christ your Savior, you're going to heaven forever. You're blessed forever as a child of God. A fellow, this is heady stuff, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. This is heady stuff. All we have to do is think about it, and we'll be thankful. This is the least we can do. So this Christmas season, just think about a few of the ways God's blessed you. Meditate on that. And when your mouth opens, there's a good chance that what will come out is what came out when Mary opened her mouth. Praise or worship. I want to mention just briefly out of Luke 2 that angels worship also. Angels worship also. You remember when the angel comes and he speaks to the shepherd? And then in verse 13 it says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, I assume fellow angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When these angels come from heaven to these shepherds on these hills, this is what they say, Glory to God in the highest. There's not a lot about angels in the Bible, and I don't want to spend much time here, but I do want to read this out of Revelation 5 as well. Some people make too much of angels, maybe some a little bit too little. Uh, they're messengers from God. But here, listen to what it says in Revelation 5:11. also. This is a, John's in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. He's seen the heavenly multitude around the throne of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 11, it says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, these are the redeemed as well as angels, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. They say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. They are worshiping. They are ascribing to Jesus, the lamb of God, worth. They're declaring his due, so to speak. The angels here outside Bethlehem, glory to God in the highest. The angels in heaven, worthy is the lamb that was slain. If you think about it this way, when you worship, you're taking up the occupation of heaven. When you and I worship, we're taking on the garb, so to speak, of heaven. The occupation of those in heaven, what are they doing? They cry out to God night and day, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or here, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Or in Luke 2, glory to God in the highest. You and I are at our best, frankly, when we are worshiping. When we lose ourselves because of God's overwhelming glory. And then we take up the occupation of angels and we ascribe, we declare to God His worth. It's the occupation of heaven. And when we follow the angel's lead, we simply describe to God back his worth. His worth. 
the angels worshipped also. Last week in Luke 2, we saw that you're never too old to witness. This week in Luke 2, we see that you're never too old to worship. We looked at old Anna last week as a witness, and we look at old Simeon this week as a worshiper. And if you remember, the scene here is Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus to the temple because according to the Jewish law, they had to offer a sacrifice to redeem Jesus as the firstborn. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. This is a Messiah, a Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you can let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon took Jesus, the baby Jesus, in his arms and blessed God. And when he blessed God, when he praised and worshipped God, he thanked him for allowing him to live, to see the Messiah And he declared the truth of Jesus' mission in blessing both Jews and Gentiles. He thanked them that he got to see it. And then he thanked him that Jesus was a Savior, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. Remember, for many Jews, Messiah was kind of a personal thing. Our Savior, our King, the descendant of David, somebody sitting in Jerusalem, raising us up to make us head of the nations again. Kind of personal. When Simeon praises God here, he thanks him that he's the Savior of Gentiles. And guess what? For most of us, that's us. Simeon's here thanking God on our behalf, even back here, that God was sending a Savior for both Jews and Gentiles. I want to mention this, too, in context. We mentioned this last week, but listen to what this says about Simeon. The Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And he came in the Spirit. We talked last week about when you witness being filled with the Spirit, having your thoughts conformed by the Holy Spirit, that it's a spiritual exercise, speaking as God's witness. Simeon here, when he worships, the Spirit was on him, it was revealed to him by the Spirit, he came in the Spirit. Since worship is inherently a spiritual exercise, and do you remember where we started? God seeks true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because worship is inherently spiritual, you and I cannot worship aright if we're not walking in, walking with the Holy Spirit. Simeon's experience of the Holy Spirit was different than ours because it was Old Testament versus New. It was pre-death and resurrection, and the Spirit was given at Pentecost in a different way, unique for those who are in the church. But you and I, if we're going to be worshipers, we can't be worshipers apart from walking with the Holy Spirit. Remember last week we talked about not grieving the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit. For you and I to worship, we've got to be walking with the one who empowers to worship. The Holy Spirit, to worship in spirit and in truth. And Simeon was doing exactly that. 
Great example of thanking God for his blessing to see the Messiah, thanking God for his gift to the world, both Jew and Gentile, and he did so as one who was being led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, second to last, parents' worship. Remember that worship is primarily submission, bowing in reverence to your superior. I want to bring this up briefly. Luke 2, 39 and 40, following Simeon's discourse here, this says, When they, when Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth, and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to perform everything according to the law they were worshiping, not just worshiping because they were offering a sacrifice for the redemption of the firstborn, which is kind of ironic, of course, because Jesus, in this sense, wasn't redeemed. He was our redemption. <clears throat> But they were worshiping simply in doing everything according to the law. Going back to what Mary said at the first, worship is inherently about obedience. Again, if you and I are verbally worshiping God and not obeying Him, it's hypocrisy, it's a contradiction. And let me just briefly recount for you an Old Testament story that makes this point. If you remember King Saul early in his reign was commanded by God to do something which is certainly hard for us to understand, but which Saul understood clearly, which was to wipe out a small group of people and everything they owned. God commanded it. Saul was to carry it out, and he didn't. And when he's called to account by the prophet Samuel, he starts making excuses. And the key excuse is this. You know what, Sam? We would have done just the way the Lord said, but you know what we, cho we chose to do? We chose to honor God, to worship God by keeping the best of the animals so that we could bring them and, and offer them in worship to God. That's what we're doing. That's what we're all about. It's okay. We're worshiping, you see? Sam, it's okay. And do you remember Samuel's response? 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken or to do than the fat of rams. If we think of being worshipers of God in the Christmas season or any other time, and it's apart or detached from obedience, forget it. Remember this verse, to obey is better than sacrifice. When Mary and Joseph went to the temple and obeyed, they were worshiping because they were obedient. They weren't just offering the sacrifice. They were coming with the right attitude. Lord, we're following your command. We're doing what you said in the law to do. This is worship. Obedience is worship. When you and I sing praises... And, you know, the church today makes much of worship, and I mean in the musical sense. We want to go to church, and we want to have a wonderful emotional experience in musical worship. And guess what? You can have a wonderful emotional experience of worship in music and be disobedient, and it's like ringing a cracked bell. It doesn't sound right, and certainly in heaven's ear it doesn't sound right. To obey is better than sacrifice. 
A life lived in humble obedience to God is a life of worship. If your acts are right, that is, if your obedience is right, I just about guarantee your words will be right. That is, if we're concerned about verbally praising God, whether it's in song or simply speaking, if your actions are right, pretty good chance your words will be right also. They tend to follow one after the other. And the last is this, and I guess the one I'm most impressed with. I like these guys the best in this story. Sorry if you like the others, but... Uh, Matthew 2, Switching Gospels. The wise men, this just, their story just strikes me. It intrigues me. It encourages me. Matthew 2, I'm just going to skip through the verses through from verse 1 to, to 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and guess what? We have come to worship him. Herod talks to them at verse 9, Having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And just remember the setting. These guys, they're wealthy knowledgeable, when it says they're magi from the east, we don't know how far east, could have been Babylonian, Assyrian area, probably. To make this kind of a journey, they're, they're the learned people, they're the PhDs of their day, no doubt. They've got money, they've got wealth, they, they, otherwise they don't make these kinds of journeys. And they know that there's a king being born in Israel, and they make it their purpose to go and worship him. The question often becomes how they know. It's likely, you remember, Israel was captive in Babylon for 70 years. And in fact, Jews were living in Babylon up until the time of uh, 1950 or so. They actually fled because of persecution. But there were Jews from the captivity period in that portion of the world until recent times. But anyway, to the point, they probably had Numbers chapter 24. They probably had the Jewish Bible. And Numbers 24 says, this is the wicked... Prophet Balaam saying, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, from Israel, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion. And I take it that these wise learned men from the east probably had numbers and understood when they saw this vision in the sky, this special star, they probably said, this is it. We knew from the Jewish writings that one day a king would come who would have dominion and rule, and he would be, his signal would be a star. We've seen it, and we have come to worship this king. Now, remember, these guys, uh, wealthy, powerful, learned, they're following the star, right? And where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, to Herod, to the place of power, right? Seat of influence to find the king, and... He's not there. But they're told what direction to head, and they see the star again. So they head out of the seat, the capital of power, down the dusty road to that little outskirt town of Bethlehem. And then they go not into the hotel, right, but they go where the animals are kept, dung on the ground, no doubt. And they find their 
searched for king, wrapped up in common cloths and lying in a feeding trough. Now, would this put you off? I think it would put me off. If I'm following a glorious star looking for the king of Israel, this would not be the setting I would be coming to. You know what? Just like Mary, this doesn't say these guys are put off at all. Not for a moment. They come and they get off their camels or whatever their beasts of burden. And they come in and here's this poor couple in the stables. And what do they do? They come in, they get their feet dirty. They probably get their nice costly gowns dirty. And they bow in reverence on the ground to this baby in a feeding trough. This blows my mind. This would be like the heads of state of another country coming into East Topeka and bowing low at an immigrant's feet. You don't do this. This is, this strikes me. You know what? Uh, these guys, uh, they were not restrained by pride. You've got to be humble to worship. You know, the proud cannot worship. If you're proud, you cannot worship. You can't get down and bow. Pride keeps you from it. Only the humble can worship. And for all these guys might have had to be proud about their position, their stature, their learning, their wealth, none of it shows here. They get off their mounts in this impoverished setting, in this animal barn, stall, and they bow low to this king. Blows my mind. You know, something else I think about this, too, related to pride. These guys didn't care that they were bowing to the one they understood to be the king. Maybe that would be okay if he was by, by himself. They took no notice of others around them that they might have felt a little embarrassed about. Just stick with me here for a minute. You can't worship God if you're worried about what other people think about you. You can't worship if you're worried about how you appear to others. Who knows who was still around? Mary and Joseph are there, you know, poor carpenter, poor little woman. Maybe some of the grubby shepherds were still around. Who knows? It's probably a little after the fact. We don't know who's there. But the point I want to make is, if you're concerned about your appearance to others, you can't worship either. This is why I say pride doesn't allow you to worship. Only humility allows you to worship. When you and I, if you're in a worship setting in a church... If you're with others praying, if your thoughts are, are this, I wonder what they'll think if I pray. I wonder if I'll sound holy enough or spiritual enough when I sing. You know, I'd like to share, but I just feel a little embarrassed and self-conscious. All those things, they keep you from worship because your eyes aren't on the king. They're on people around you and on yourself. Only the humble can worship. So when you and I think that we're going to worship, remember this, your worship isn't about yourself and it's not about anybody else either. It's about you and I bowing before the king and attributing to him the praise that he's due. And that's what these guys did. Wealthy, important people humbly bowed low in this mucky animal stall, got their robes dirty, didn't care who saw them, and they worshipped this king.
And then they gave him their treasures. What a great example. I think oftentimes when we pray or worship, we're doing so with an eye towards those around us. And that's not worship. How do I look? How do I sound? That's not about worship. Let me close with a, this is a child's verse, sort of. I can't remember where we, we got this. When you're thinking about the Christmas season and worship, though, I like this one. It goes like this. Uh, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. What can I give him? I'll give him my heart. This is where we're at. This is where you and I live. We're not wise men at the scene. We're not shepherds, most of us probably. There's lots of things we can't do. But you know what? We can do this. And, you know, we can join shepherds, wise men, parents, old men and women, young, and we can worship. You remember where we started? God is seeking worshipers. And when you read the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you read a story filled with worship. And this Christmas season, and at the 4th of July next summer, think about these stories. God calls us. He seeks worshipers. He seeks worshipers. Remember these folks, this example, and let's worship with them. Let's pray. Lord, it strikes me that although you need nothing from us, you seek those who will worship you. Lord, for us to worship you is the highest calling we can have. Lord, when we worship you, we are most liberated. We are most ourselves when we lose ourselves in your presence. Lord, help us in our minds this morning or at any other time to make much of you and with Mary and with the wise men and with others to bow low before you and to tell you you're God and we're not. You're free to do as you please in our life. Lord, help us to be led by your Spirit, to meditate on who you are and what you've done and how you've blessed us. And Lord, help us to cultivate an outlook of humility so that we can worship you and love others as we ought. Lord Jesus, thanks for coming down humbly yourself in a stable, then facing death on a cross to redeem us back to the Father. This Christmas season, help us to just count our blessings in your incarnation, and in the redemption you provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.